Welcome back to the Cosmosphere podcast. This month, you're going to hear from Cosmosphere educator Chuck McClary. His presentation is on the final frontier, the relationship between the ocean and space. And that's going to be up right after we catch up with Carla about what's going on here at the Cosmosphere for the rest of 2019. It's hard to believe we're closing out the year already. Without any further delay, let's chat with Carla. Today, I'm actually hanging in uh, Carla's office here at the Cosmosphere. We're changing it up a little bit for recording because I'm actually out in Kansas right now. Carla, welcome back on the podcast. Thanks, John. As always, love being here. Oh, yeah. This is an interesting change of pace because usually I'm sitting in Colorado in my uh, recording studio and you're here. So this is kind of a cool change of pace. It is nice. Um, there's a lot of stuff coming up. Oh, in, my goodness. Well, because it's basically Christmas time, as mm-hmm. scary as that sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us what we've got going on for the remainder of November and the rest of the year. Sure. I will. I'll start with all of our November stuff here. So we just launched brand new camp programs. So if you haven't heard the news, we have revamped our content. We are installing a brand new capsule-based simulator uh, modeled after the Orion uh, capsule that NASA is using. So our campers will actually do missions uh, very similar to what probably astronauts are, are um, testing on at NASA. So that's coming. We have brand new content, brand new hands-on activities in all of the camp levels. All of that information, if you're a returning camper, we encourage you to look at that because your experience will be different. But if you're a new camper, welcome. All of that's at cosmocamps.org. We also just opened scholarship applications for camp as well. So if you need financial assistance for camp, you can find those there. Uh, Then I wanted to let everyone know we have a brand new artifact and collection. It is a 3D replica of the Neil Armstrong Apollo 11 suit. So this is from Smithsonian Air and Space. Um, They put these suits together in time for the 50th and sent them out to baseball parks all around the nation. Um, And then after that uh, initiative was done this summer, they offered them up to science centers around the nation and we were lucky enough to be one of those places. So you can see Neil right as you enter the main doors of the and he makes a great picture backdrop. He also has patches on his suit that you can scan using a special um, app on your camera phone, phone camera. I think any phone, because um, I think with, with like the iPhone at least, when you have a QR code that pops up, it should just go just directly. show like, hey, there's a link to whatever. Um, so I think most Android devices do it too. I just don't use Android, so I don't know the specifics, but I'll test it out. Okay. Um, <laughs> After we're done recording. And there's extra content and videos and interviews that you can access using your phone. So that's brand new. Uh, We are starting a brand new documentary here tomorrow, the 22nd. We will premiere Out of Bounds Mountain Adventure. It follows Olympian Tora Bright. She's a snowboarding Olympian. And she travels from Antarctica to Alaska down a chain of mountains. And you follow along with her on her journey. Sounds cool. A little different than the normal space and science but still interesting and you learn about mountain ecosystems 
planetary science. It's, exactly. It happens to be Earth, not another planet. Exactly. So. <laughs> but it works. Then uh, <clears throat> we will start gearing up for the holidays as well. Um, as many of our friends who follow us know, we've participated in Hashtag Giving Tuesday the last several years. We will again this year. So watch our Facebook, our social media, um, our website for details on that. But it's a day um, following Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all of the spending events yeah. where we really get into the spirit of Thanksgiving. We um, become thankful for our community and we have the opportunity to give back with millions of other people around the world. So if the Cosmosphere is is your passion and, and where you want to show your support, we'd love to love to see you on that day. Definitely. Then on, uh, I actually have to back up a day, excuse me, on November, <clears throat> December 1st is Museum Store Sunday. This is a newer initiative, but we have participated in it for the first time last year. We're going to offer extra discounts in our gift store on Sunday the 1st. Cool. So 25% off extra for items in the gift store, the cafe, or Hall of Space admission. And we're giving away free tote bags to, um, you know, a limited quantity, but with a purchase of $25 or more. So show up early. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Get here early. Come visit us. See us again on Giving Tuesday. We'd love to have you. Then in December, and I'll have more specifics for you as we get a little bit closer, John, mm -hmm. but we are bringing back our Polar Express showing. So cool. we'll have several opportunities for families to come out and participate in that. And um, we are going to be closed, obviously, like always on Thanksgiving sure. and Christmas Day. I would, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice to have a break. Uh, well, that sounds like there's definitely a lot of fun things going on here at the tail end of 2019. So It really is. And 2020 <sighs> is promising to be pretty fantastic as well. We have set the date for our Apollo 13 celebration. Ooh. So it is April 4th. Okay. There will be actually two different opportunities at different price levels to hear from Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, Gene Krantz, oh, wow. Jerry Griffin, and a number of other mission controllers. You can see the full list on our website. Our calendar has that listed. Awesome. Um, but it will be a panel discussion. There will okay. be, like I said, two opportunities, one over at the Stringer Fine Arts Center at a lower price point. Okay. Um, and then one here at the Cosmosphere later in the evening that day uh, at a higher price point with dinner served. Cool. Well, I know what I'm doing in April now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll definitely be out here for that. Um, it's just kind of hard to believe we're already, I mean, we're basically in the middle, we're getting to the middle of the 50th anniversaries for all the Apollo missions mm -hmm. now. And we're really hitting the core of yeah, the Apollo mission yeah. Yeah, anniversaries and for we're, sure. We're almost done with a, the Apollo 12 anniversary. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, it's interesting how fast it's flying by. Mm -hmm. so. I really, I feel like it gives you that true sense of what these folks were doing. Yeah. You know, we just had Apollo 11 yeah. in July. think you've got two other missions in there before April. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, and we hope to have many more celebrations as the as we get closer to 2022. Well, I look forward to helping with those. So wonderful! We'll <laughs> sign you up. <laughs> awesome. Well, that will be it for uh, today. Thanks for coming back on, Carla. Absolutely. Thanks.
How is everyone? Good. Uh, as Carla said, my name is Chuck. I work in the education department here at the Cosmosphere. Um, usually I do a lot of camps during the summer and things like that. I write a lot of curriculum. Um, and uh, today I get to talk about how, the, how deep sea exploration relates to space exploration. Uh, so for now, turns out Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek intro doesn't apply. Um, for now, space is not the final frontier. So today there are two final frontiers. There's uh, space and the depths of the ocean. Uh, because we're finding out more and more all the time that we know very little about the ocean. The more we explore, the more we find out we don't know. So space is, of course, vast, and this is true that we've only just scratched the surface of exploring it. Um, as advanced as human technology gets, we'll never be able to fully explore space. Uh, but for now, it is not alone in its unexplored status. More than 70% of, uh, of the Earth's surface is covered in oceans, and the ocean comprises an estimated 99% of the Earth's living space. Most of that living space, of course, has never been visited. And just as exploring space may give us more insight about the origins of life in the universe, exploring the ocean floor will hopefully shine a light on the origins of life on Earth, uh, and lots of other benefits besides that as well, but we'll talk about those. So there are lots of parallels between the exploration of the ocean and the exploration of space. So we'll discuss the history of both ocean exploration and space exploration and the current state of both of these fields. Uh, and of course, I'll drop parallels as we go along. So keep in mind, I'm not an expert in this field. Uh, this is just kind of a passion project as I research this. Um, so if you have questions, feel free to ask them at the end, but um, there may be some things I don't know, believe it or not. Okay, we'll start with ocean exploration. Uh, as I said before, 70% of the Earth's surface is covered in water. Um, and if you were to look at the, uh, at the side of the Pacific Ocean, um, uh, if we were looking at the side of the Earth of the Pacific Ocean, then it would, have, uh, uh, it would have just water, basically. It would look like just water with some little specks of land. Because the, uh, the Earth, as it turns out, is mostly water on its surface. Um, and we don't really think about that that much landlocked here in Kansas. Uh, so we'll start with ocean exploration, and uh, it's right here in the very beginning that we run into our first parallel between exploring the ocean and exploring space. The problem that we run into with exploring either one of these is pressure. In space, of course, there's a lack of pressure, which can cause humans great harm. Uh, a rapid expansion of everything elastic or fluid in our bodies uh, tends to give us a fatal case of the bends. Uh, in the ocean, we run into the opposite problem. So the deepest point on Earth is Challenger Deep. It's 35,843 feet. I have to be looking at the page for this one because that's a lot of detail. Uh, 35,843 feet, or about 6.8 miles deep. And at that depth, the water pressure reaches, you ready for this? 15,000 pounds per square inch. That is a thousand times more than the pressure that's on you right now. So it's a thousand times stronger than the pressure you experience on the surface. So it's only been in very recent history that humans have been able to explore uh, at any sort of significant depth without being crushed. Um, so if we just look at this for a second, we have some interesting, uh, some interesting graphics on this, on this picture here. Uh, sea level 
Of course, we have a, a pressure of 101 kilopascals. That equals 14.6 uh, psi. Um, that's what you're feeling right now. It's also called one atmosphere. That's a little bit easier to uh, um, to keep track of. As we go down, if we go one kilometer below the surface, um, that is where light stops. Light can't penetrate uh, into the ocean beyond one kilometer down below the surface. Um, and then, as we keep going, the uh, maximum dive depth of the sperm whale um, is at 2,500 meters, so two and a half kilometers. Um, the sperm whale uh, is the deepest diving mammal on Earth. So that's where that's as far as mammals go naturally, is, uh, is two and a half kilometers down. As we go down to 4,000 meters below the ocean, we get below the surface, we get the abyssal zone. That's a cool name. <laughs> but the abyssal zone uh, is, the, is the zone with a whole lot of angler fish and, uh, and uh, animals that have a whole lot of um, uh, it just left me. Bioluminescence, a whole lot of bioluminescence with these animals. Uh, and then as we keep going down, we get to uh, we get to the height of Mount Everest down below the ocean. So that is uh, the height of Mount Everest is uh, is 8,850 meters, and then you still have another 2,000 meters to go after that, another two kilometers to go. So to put that in imperial units. Um, you could set uh, you could set Mount Everest at the bottom of Challenger Peak, the deepest point on Earth, and uh, Mount Everest would still have about a mile of water on top of it, which is a crazy thought. So this uh, puts in perspective what we're talking about. This is why the ocean is not very uh, is not very thoroughly explored yet, because it's way harder, it's really hard to get there, essentially. It's very difficult to get to the bottom, and once you're down there, you can only see as far as your uh, sonar or your lights will let you see. Okay, where was I? So the first exploration uh, was all on the ocean surface, of course. Uh, just about any ancient culture that was near a water source figured out how to make boats. And we have evidence of people diving below the surface as early as 6,000 years ago, uh, sometimes using tubes to allow them to get air from the surface. So, you know, bamboo sticks, uh, hollowed out, uh, hollowed out reeds, that kind of thing, um, that would allow people to stay, you know, somewhat well below the surface um, for a short amount of time. There are a few unconfirmed legends of people using various inventions to go deeper than that uh, before the Common Era. Um, in fact, there's uh, a legend of Alexander the Great using a glass diving bell. Um, the thing that makes me think it's a little bit unlikely is that it's the uh, glass part of it. I'm not so sure they were that good at using glass at the time. But here is a, uh, here is a diving bell. Um, and essentially the idea with the diving bell, if you don't know, um, there's a bell-shaped object um, that can be anywhere from uh, barely human-sized to 10 feet tall, even larger sometimes. Um, but essentially, uh, if you've ever done that kids' science experiment where you take a cup with a paper towel in it and push it upside down into water, and the paper towel stays dry because the air pressure is keeping the water out, that's the idea behind the diving bell. And with a 10-foot diving bell, you can go 300 feet down 
before that water pressure starts to um, starts to uh, overcome the air pressure. And at 300 feet down, you'll have about 11 inches of air up in the top of the up in the top of the diving bell. So even with the diving bell, excuse me, even with the diving bell, you're pretty well limited to a certain uh, to a certain depth. So um, let me see here. Aristotle uh, documented early designs of the diving bell, um, and Da Vinci. Uh, well, it was a so Da Vinci also had a design for a submarine, but kind of like his flying machines, it never actually came to fruition. There's a, a diagram of Da Vinci's idea for a submarine. It had uh, oars on the outside, um, which I'm not sure those would work quite as well. Uh, in a submarine as they do on the surface on the surface boat. But uh, by the 1600s, diving bells became uh, quite common for exploration and for industry. Um, and a lot of a lot of ships would, a lot of pirate ships even would carry diving bells on board so that if they were over a shipwreck, they'd be able to send someone down and kind of scrounge around uh, on the shipwreck to see if there was any uh, any valuables left over. Um, so diving bells by the 1600s were pretty uh, were pretty common by this point. However, thanks to water pressure, like I said, a 10 foot tall a 10 foot tall diving bell could only descend about 300 feet and still have a usable pocket of air inside. So during the 17th and 18th century, most people thought that the ocean floor at its deepest points um, was extremely barren. They thought there was no life there. Sound familiar? Uh, so uh, people thought people were pretty sure that the ocean floor was uh, extremely barren, um, and exploration of the ocean floor didn't really start until the 1850s, when, with the invention of the telegraph, when suddenly we had to somehow uh, communicate between two continents um, without sending a boat across, of course. And the way you do that is by streaming the wire from uh, from one continent to the next. Um, and the easiest way to do that is across the ocean floor. So they had to find a good spot on the ocean floor to uh, lay down telegraph wires, to lay down telegraph lines. So this is when they started really, uh, really plumbing the depths of the Atlantic to try and figure out where was a good spot to lay down these telegraph lines. You can see right here, Eventually, they had a whole lot of telegraph lines. Um, this is just from one company, by the way, Eastern Telegraph Company. Um, so we have a whole bunch of telegraph lines running across the Atlantic right there. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of the exploration of the ocean floor. And then in 1873, from 1873 to 1876, um, Sir Charles Thompson, led an expedition on the HMS Challenger. Um, <laughs> the HMS Challenger World Tour kind of sounds like a band tour, but I'm just going to leave that there. Um, it, on this tour, it discovered uh, the Challenger discovered 5,000 new species just by, uh, just by bringing creatures up from really deep depths. Um, and they also found the Marianas Trench. The Marianas Trench is um, is the really deep trench that ha that has the it includes the Challenger Deep, the deepest point um, on the Earth's surface. So, the uh, Challenger Deep is of course named after the HMS Challenger because that's the the ship that found the Marianas Trench. Um, the Challenger 
uh, the Challenger went on a three-year tour of the world's oceans, um, and uh, like I said, they found 5,000 new species, and they were plumbing the bottom as they went, which means they were essentially putting lead weight, there's the plumb part of it, plumb bone, um, they, they essentially put a lead weight on the end of a rope, and it tossed it out into the ocean, and they had markers along the rope to tell them how, how much rope had been let out. Um, and they found what they thought was just a really, really, really deep hole when they found uh, Challenger Deep. Um, so they thought that in the middle of, uh, in the, middle of the Pacific, uh, near the Marianas Islands, there was just a really, really deep hole. Um, and they didn't, they, didn't find the, uh, they didn't find the trench at that time. But what they did find was evidence of a mid-ocean ridge uh, in the Pacific. We know this as the East Pacific Ridge at this point. Um, I don't have it up here. Um, but we'll have a picture of it later on. But the uh, East Pacific Ridge um, is essentially an underwater mountain range that runs along the eastern side of the Pacific. And uh, it's the discovery of this mountain range that led to the confirmation of tectonic theory. Um, that wasn't uh, fully accepted until the 1950s or 1960s. I, personally, I didn't realize that. I thought it was a little older than that. But uh, tectonic theory was not accepted until the 50s or 60s. Um, and it was with the confirmation of this underwater mountain range that they uh, confirmed that theory. Okay, so moving on to uh, this is the end of the 19th century. If we move to the beginning of the 20th century, um, submarines gained prevalence in the world wars. They had uh, This was an invention that had been around for a while, but they weren't uh, that viable of an invention until, the, until World War I and World War II. Um, and with, um, with the, with the uh, use of submarines, the widespread use of submarines, um, people really started getting interested in uh, developing this, this new invention of sonar. The invention of sonar actually came in the, uh, the 1930s, I believe, um, but it wasn't exactly fully developed until the 1950s. So there's a bit of a, a bit of a gap in between there. So it wasn't used heavily during World War II. But essentially, sonar is the same idea as radar. With sonar, you emit a sound wave, uh, you emit a sound wave and measure the time that it takes for that sound wave to bounce back to your source. So you have to know how fast sound travels through salt water, but once you know that, you can bounce, uh, you can emit a sound, it'll bounce off the seafloor um, back towards you, and you can measure that time um, and see how deep the ocean is in that spot. Um, sonar. Uh, has gotten very high detail these days, and we can talk more about that uh, later as well. But sonar allowed the confirmation of the uh, uh, sonar uh, allowed the confirmation of the East Pacific rise, um, and it was confirmed shortly after World War II. And this allowed the acceptance of tectonic theory, like I was saying. The uh, East Pacific rise uh, there is South America right over here. And the East Pacific Rise runs right here. Now, the interesting thing about the East Pacific Rise is it's just a small part of a worldwide mountain range under the water. This mountain range actually continues um, 
It needs to be Atlantic, where it's called the Mid-Atlantic Mid Atlantic Ridge. Um, so it's a giant mountain range that runs all the way around the world that we had no idea existed um, until the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, shortly after World War II, uh, okay, so Jacques Picard, uh, now we're going to jump to Jacques Picard in 1960, actually his uh, father, Auguste Picard. Um, Auguste Picard uh, built a submersible, or a giant submersible, a submarine essentially, uh, called the Trieste. And uh, he finished it in 1953. It was bought by the U.S. Navy in 1958. But the express purpose of the Trieste was to um, was to explore as deep as possible. Auguste Picard wanted this submarine to go to the bottom of Challenger Deep, where once again the pressure is 15,000 psi. Um, so this submarine was built in 1953. It was bought by the U.S. Navy in 1958, and then the um, the exploration of Challenger Deep commenced in 1960 with, um, with Auguste's son, Jacques Picard. Um, they went to the bottom of Challenger Deep in the Trieste, along with uh, Don Walsh of the U.S. Navy, because um, it was owned by the Navy, so they had to have a Navy guy on board. Um, and they actually found life even at the bottom of Challenger Deep, which was contrary to what people thought at the time. They were able to find life there, and then as soon as they hit the bottom, they kind of stirred up a whole lot of sediment, and they couldn't see very much, and so they went back up early. Um, on their way down, they had, uh, so on this, on this submarine, they had two panes of glass on a porthole, um, so that they would be able to, uh, so they'd be able to see out. They had a very small porthole, and it had two panes of glass. The outer one shattered on their way down. And they still decided to keep going. <laughs> I would not do that. <laughs> they weren't actually that far down either. They were maybe like three kilometers down. Their outer window shattered. And they decided, yeah, it's fine. Um, so, uh, deep sea exploration continued. Submersibles um, got better and got smaller. Um, a lot of submersibles that are made for deep sea exploration still are not made for the depths of Challenger Deep um, because that's crazy. You only do that if your last name is Picard. Star Trek fans around here? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, one of the most famous submersibles um, that got used in a lot of uh, deep, uh, a lot of underwater exploration um, and has a lot of discoveries attached to its name is the submersible named Alvin. They actually have a picture of Alvin uh, over here in the bottom right corner. Um, Alvin was uh, a submersible that was built in the uh, 70s, and it was actually used for lots of different discoveries, including the discovery of the Titanic, uh, the Titanic wreckage. Um, so uh, it has the discovery of the Titanic wreckage under its belt, and also the uh, discovery of these undersea vents near the Galapagos Islands in 1977. Uh, the discovery of these vents are uh, important for geology, uh, geologic knowledge. Are things happening on the screen here? Uh, I kept seeing light blinking. Uh, 
So this is important for geological knowledge and also um, biological knowledge as well. Um, and the reason is because this confirmed um, tectonic theory, it really uh, solidified it, and we now know that um, that the Earth is basically recycling its, its land, essentially. It's recycling the surface. Um, so uh, the surface underneath, underneath the Pacific, the surface is moving from, uh, the ocean floor is moving from the um, East Pacific Ridge towards the Marianas Trench, where the land essentially dives down into the mantle of the Earth at the Marianas Trench. Um, so the Earth is constantly recycling the land that is on top, um, which was uh, had been it had been theorized but not confirmed until this discovery. Um, and they also found life nearby that is deep enough that it can't ever see the sun. So this is life that has no need for the sun, um, and it actually feeds on the minerals that are coming out of these underwater um, these underwater vents that are spewing um, that are spewing hot water and minerals from the mantle of the Earth. So, uh, once again, that submersible, Alvin discovered that and would actually go on to discover the Titanic, uh, the uh, Titanic wreckage as well. And today we have um, ROVs, which are essentially um, underwater robots. So, underwater robots uh, have been used for um, quite some time now, a couple of decades. Uh, they kind of reached prevalence in the uh, 1990s, um, and they've been getting progressively better ever since. So ROVs um, have gotten more and more advanced the entire time. Also today we have sail drones. These, this is actually new, um, a new thing within the last five years or so. But sail drones are essentially solar-powered, um, solar-powered canoes with a sail on them, so they can. Um, they can go in a, uh, a, pre, a pre-programmed pattern across the ocean surface. Um, and the founder of the sail drone company said that he wants, uh, said that he wants a, uh, one sail drone for every grid square in the, um, in the oceans so that we can um, more accurately study the oceans, its currents, um, and the, uh, the temperatures in the oceans um, the life in the oceans, you name it, you can put you can put a whole bunch of different um, uh, a whole bunch of different scientific instruments in the sail drone and let it go, and it'll pretty much just go until you tell it to come back, or until you go out and collect the data yourself. But it can actually stream that data, bounce it off the satellite, and get it right back to you immediately. You don't have to send it out, wait for it to come back, and then get the data. Um, so. This is an invention within the last five years that I think, uh, this is the one I see going places. <laughs> it's uh, one of my favorites. And then of course we have satellite imagery. And satellite imagery has gotten more and more advanced uh, in the last several decades as well. And what satellite imagery allows us to do is get an accurate read on um, all of the oceans. Uh, get an accurate read on the temperature of all of the oceans almost at the same time. Um, and also figure out ocean currents, what's happening with ocean currents, and how those currents and temperatures might be related to um, the weather that's going on, how those affect the, the weather and how they will affect the weather in the future. So all of this is happening with ocean exploration right now. Now let's review space exploration a little bit. 
Um, I recognize a lot of faces here. A lot of you come to the Cosmos Street fairly often. Um, so I figured that you know a little bit more about space exploration and ocean exploration. Is that somewhat accurate? Okay. Um, so I'll be a little bit quicker on space exploration. But uh, space exploration, um, there we go. Has its own slide. There we go. <laughs> space exploration uh, follows the history of rockets. Um, I won't spend too much time on this part because you can get all of this in Dr. Goddard's lab here at the Cosmosphere every day. Um, so um, the history of rockets started with uh, the Chinese in the uh, in the 1100s, and the, the uh, fire arrows, as they were called, were used to get to the Mongols in the 1200s. These were solid-fueled rockets, and of course, with a solid-fueled rocket, you basically just kind of light it, and it keeps on going until it runs out of fuel, and there's no way to stop it until that happens. So these were used mainly for weapons and for fireworks um, for. Uh, several hundred years uh, until the end of the uh, the end of the 19th century, when people like Konstantin Tsiolkovsky over here um, started thinking about how we could make a rocket that would be able to take people into space. Tsiolkovsky was a Russian um, <coughs> excuse me. He was a Russian rocket scientist uh, who was born in uh, I can't see it from here but it's on my page somewhere. Where are we at? Uh, he was born in, thank you, 1857. <laughs> uh, I had 1882 stuck in my head because that's when Robert H. Goddard was born. But um, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky um, started thinking about rockets kind of in the 1880s, around the time that Dr. Goddard was born. In the, in the 1880s, the necessary technology was not there for him to be able to complete a lot of his ideas. And uh, he had a whole lot of great ideas about rockets. Um, he had a lot of equations uh, that helped Dr. Goddard and Werner von Braun later on down the road. Um, he also had a lot of, uh, he came up with the design for the combustion chamber of the rocket, uh, the throat, the exhaust nozzle. All of that stuff, that was all uh, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, but he never was able to get any of these to, he was never able to get any of these built, essentially, um, because of his resources, where he was, uh, and also um, the, the time that he was thinking about this. He was way ahead of his time. Um, Robert Goddard was able to use uh, Tsiolkovsky's ideas to launch uh, the world's very first successful fuel rocket. Um, he did most of his work in Roswell, New Mexico. And if you're wondering, no, he had nothing to do with the 1947 crash. <laughs> um, because he died in 1945. But uh, he was the first to launch a liquid-fueled rocket. Um, and this thing was one that went you know, 40 feet up in the air, something like that. But one of the main things that allowed Dr. Goddard to actually get a rocket to work was that with Dr. Goddard, he was around at the right time to have liquid oxygen available to him. Um, and he also had the right resources, knew the right people, etc. So he was using a lot of Sokovsky's ideas and putting them into practical use and tweaking them so that they worked. Then we get to World War II and the Cold War. You can't talk about space exploration without talking about the Cold War, it turns out because the Cold War was a big driver for many of the uh, 
um, for many of the milestones that took place in space exploration. So uh, on the on the American side, we had Werner von Braun, who had uh, who had made the German V2 during World War II. Um, he was a member of the Nazi Party in World War II, but he surrendered to the United States uh, at the end of the war. And uh, he was brought back to the U.S. and he continued to research rockets in New Mexico um, during the late 40s and early 50s um, for the U.S. They were using the V-2 rocket um, and sending that up into space on kind of sounding missions. They also, uh, also, the first animal sent to space was not Laika the dog. Um, Laika was the first, uh, the first animal in orbit. So next time someone tells you Laika was the first animal in space, say, no, that's not right. <laughs> Don't say that, they wouldn't like you very much. Um, but the first animals in space were two fruit flies in 1947. They rode on a, uh, they rode on a V2 rocket. So on the American side, we had Werner von Braun. He was the trusted designer of most of the U.S. rockets. And on the uh, Soviet side, we had Sergei Korolev. I'd just like to uh, I'd just like to point out how long it took me to find a picture of Werner von Braun looking that way and Sergei Korolev looking this way. So thank you. <laughs> so Sergei Korolev was an aerospace engineer during the World War during World War II. And he was actually sent to the Gulag a couple of different times in, um, in uh, Stalin's purges. Stalin had something against, um, against aerospace engineers. And historians are still a little bit unsure what that was. Um, but he wasn't a big fan of aerospace engineers. And so uh, uh, Sergei Korolev was actually sent to the Gulag a couple of different times. And thankfully, he survived. Uh, and he was, and he later became the chief designer of Soviet rockets, both for nuclear weapons and for space travel. So these two guys directly paralleled each other um, in the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, of course, the Soviet Union became the first to, uh, uh, both sides began, uh, began with suborbital flights, of course. They began sending different payloads up into space with um, scientific instrumentation and also animals. Um, there are actually a lot of flights of animals um, going into space before uh, before we sent humans, of course. Um, Lake of the Dog was just the first one in orbit, but there were lots of animals that went that did suborbital flights. That uh, um, a lot of them made it, but also a lot of them did not. We'll say that. Um, so both sides were using captured V2s or copies of the V2 uh, for research at the beginning. So once we get into sending things into orbital flight, um, the reason I draw a delineation here is because for suborbital flight, you just have to send your rocket up and back down. It doesn't matter how fast your rocket is going once it reaches space, it just has to reach space for it to be a suborbital space flight. So your rocket doesn't have to be that powerful. If you're going to send something into orbit, you're, you need to have an extremely powerful rocket that can send your object at least 17,000 miles an hour um, to get into a circular orbit. So you have to have a very, very powerful rocket. There's a big step up in power between suborbital and orbital. That's why I draw a delineation there. But um, 
The Soviets launched Sputnik 1 in 1957, in October of 1957, um, and Sputnik 2, carrying Laika the dog, uh, was launched in uh, was launched in November of 1957, and then the U.S. launched uh, Explorer 1 in um, in 1958, January 31st, 1958, and there were a lot of different um, uh, there was a lot of scientific experimentation going on, not just trying to um, not just trying to uh, break records. So manned space flight at this time was kind of all about breaking records before the other side could break records. So the Soviet Union was trying to reach certain goals before the US could. At least for a while, that's what was going on. So a lot of the manned space flights were just about defeating the Russians or the Russians beating the Americans. Um, however, satellites, um, satellites were Often for spying on the other side, that is true. There were a lot of um, there were a lot of spy satellites, but there were also a, there was also a lot of scientific discovery that was going on with satellites. Um, so the Explorer One, uh, the Explorer One satellite was able to discover the Van Allen radiation belts, which told us that there was a band of radiation outside the Earth's atmosphere um, that. Uh, astronauts needed to avoid if they wanted to stay safe in space. Um, so we learned how to, we learned where the thickest parts of the radiation belt were, we learned how to send our astronauts around it instead of through it, and uh, that's how we were able to go outside the Van Allen radiation belts to get to the moon. You just fly around it. Um, now, as far as manned space flight goes, um, I'll focus on the on the US here, but um, I will point out that the Soviets were um, beating the United States for the, a significant portion of the uh, of the space race. Um, the Russians were ahead of the US for much of the early space race. Um, but in the US, we started with the Mercury program. The Mercury program launched one person. Uh, it started with suborbital flights and then went on to orbital flights by 1962. So Alan Shepard became the first American in space in 1961 using a, uh, a Mercury capsule. John Glenn became the first American to orbit, um, also using a Mercury capsule. Um, but the Mercury capsule did not change its orbit. It could change basically which direction it was facing as it flew through, um, as it flew around the Earth. You could change the direction that it was facing, but you couldn't change the direction that it was going. Um, so, in order to get to the moon, we needed to be able to change our trajectory, um, and in order to, and we needed to be able to practice a lot of other things, including spacewalks and also um, long-duration spaceflight. So that is where Gemini came in. Gemini was a very advanced spacecraft, if cramped. Uh, it was fairly advanced for for its time. The astronauts had complete control over what the uh, spacecraft was doing. And on the very first Gemini, manned Gemini flight, um, the orbit that the astronauts were in was changed. So they could actually change direction. And that was, um, that was when we finally had a spacecraft that was um, actually a way to get from one place to another in space. And then, of course, we had the uh, Apollo, um, the Apollo program, which was made 
specifically to get to the moon. This one is a picture of uh, Apollo 13. We have that downstairs, in case you didn't know. Um, go check that one out. And then after Apollo, we had the space shuttle. So the interesting thing, kind of like uh, ocean exploration, um, the Apollo missions, uh, we were building up to the Apollo missions from Mercury to Apollo, and we went to the moon. We went 240,000 miles um, away from Earth's atmosphere in space. And then after that, we kind of shrank back to um, uh, we kind of shrank back to where we were before. Kind of paralleling that, I could find no other instance other than uh, other than 1953 or 1960 when we have uh, actually been to the bottom of Challenger Deep with people. So we um, the in ocean exploration, people went to Challenger Deep in 1960 and then never went back. And uh, in space exploration, we went to the moon from 1969 until 1972, and then never went back. But uh, that's just an interesting parallel that I saw there. Now, the overlap. I've talked a whole lot about space exploration and ocean exploration, but not where they actually overlap, other than philosophically. Philosophically, of course, um, there's an obvious uh, analogy um, there's an obvious analogy between, um, between ocean exploration and space exploration. You know, it's the analogy where um, people are looking off on the horizon and wondering what's on the other side. The same could be said for someone staring up into the stars and wondering what's out there. There's that obvious analogy there. There's also a lot of analogies between, um, you could draw, uh, you could draw a parallel between um, perhaps the diving bell and um, the mercury capsule, for instance. Um, so there are a lot of philosophical parallels that you could draw. Um, there's also, uh, so plumbing the depths and using telescopes, so what Challenger was doing by sending, uh, sending lead to the bottom of the ocean on the end of a rope um, is kind of like using early telescopes to look up at the stars. Um, so submersibles um, are a lot like, or, or excuse me, ROVs, the, the remote operated vehicles that we send to the bottom of the ocean, are an awful lot like space probes that we send to, uh, that we send to either orbit other planets or land on other planets. Um, so ROVs directly parallel space probes as well. And of course, it's difficult to explore both space and the ocean. Um, for much the same reason, um, but on opposite, opposite ends of that spectrum, of course, um, the lack of pressure in space and immense pressure in the ocean. Um, but there were also lots of space capsules that landed in the ocean. So this is where um, this is where space exploration and ocean exploration are actually tied to each other, physically tied to each other. Um, there were lots of space capsules that landed in the ocean. Um, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, um, all of those space capsules landed in the ocean because it makes it easier to have a soft landing. Um, the Orion capsule, which NASA is in the process of certifying right now, that also lands in the ocean for a soft landing. And SpaceX and Boeing are both uh, landing their capsules in the ocean right now as well. 
there were plans for SpaceX to have kind of a helicopter landing on uh, um, on land, but that was scrubbed, I believe. But spacecraft often land in the ocean, uh, and satellites, um, satellites orbiting the Earth in space, help us learn more about the ocean. So things in space are actually doing their own exploration of the ocean. In fact, they do help us map out the seafloor as well, because uh, you can't have instrumentation on a satellite that maps out the seafloor um, even through several kilometers of water. Also, NASA trains under the ocean for, uh, for isolated missions. Um, uh, there's actually um, a NASA project, <coughs> excuse me, that's basically a building on the bottom of the ocean floor, not very far down, it's like 60 yards, something like that. But it's on the bottom of the ocean floor and astronauts live inside this building at the bottom of the ocean floor for uh, a year at a time sometimes. And if they want to go outside, they have to essentially do an extravehicular activity. They have to put on, uh, they have to put on a scuba suit, put on scuba tanks, and go out through an airlock. So it's a fairly good simulation of the isolation that you would have in a space mission. Um, let's see here. Uh, ocean exploration techniques, the things that we learned how to do by exploring the bottom of the, the bottom of the seafloor, um, those actually helped um, those actually helped recover Liberty Bell 7 and the F1 engines um, and also recover a lot of other wreckage as well. But um, specifically with spacecraft, um, the uh, we were able to pull Liberty Bell 7 up from the bottom of the ocean using these ocean ring techniques. Essentially, when we uh, when the Cosmosphere and the Discovery Channel were looking for Liberty Bell 7, um, they calculated the likely landing spot of Liberty Bell 7 um, and came up with an 8 by 24 mile stretch. Um, an 8 by 24 mile stretch and basically did what they called mowing the lawn. They would tug a, um, a sonar, uh, an underwater sonar, drag, they would drag a sonar uh, vehicle behind the boat, essentially. And the sonar vehicle would um, look on, uh, would look at the bottom of the ocean as they, um, as they uh, went across. I wanted to come up with a better word than went. Um, it's going to go with drive, but you don't do that on the ocean. Um, but as they went across the ocean surface, they would do a pattern that they called mowing the lawn, where they go across and then they come back, go across and come back to this uh, grid square that they had laid out. And they found a whole bunch using sonar. They used a, they found a whole bunch of possible targets um, that reflected back um, towards the boat pretty heavily, and they checked. Uh, these targets, I have 10 minutes left. I'm, I'm going to be fine. I'm around, around wrapping up right now. So, <laughs> um, uh, they checked these targets, and on the very first target that they decided that, that they decided to actually send an ROV down, uh, remote operated, uh, remotely operated vehicle, uh, on the very first target that they sent an RV, ROV down to, they found Liberty Bell 7. Um, they didn't have the equipment to pull it up at that point, though. 
So they went back to shore and came out later with the necessary equipment, and they went down to the spot that they had marked and didn't find it <laughs> for three days. Uh, they had marked a slightly incorrect spot, but eventually they were able to find it and uh, bring it back up, and it was restored here to the Cosmosphere. If you would like to see it now, it is at the uh, Museum at Prairie Fire in Kansas City. Um, so it's not that far away. It's not like it was when it was in uh, a completely different state before. So um, if you would like to see Liberty Bell 7, it's only a three hour drive away. Go check it out. Um, also, the F1 engines. Um, the F1 engine parts, you can check those out here. Um, the F1 engine parts are um, parts of the engine that were at the that were on the first stage of the Saturn V booster. The parts that we have here are from the actual Apollo 11 mission. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a, what a completed F1 engine looks like, if you go outside a museum, the disconnected rocket engine that's outside a museum um, is an F1 engine. It's about 12 feet tall. It is monstrous, um, and five of those would produce seven and a half million pounds of thrust that were needed to launch a 363-foot rocket. Um, so those pieces were at the bottom of the ocean and were dredged up um, and were uh, were conserved uh, here at the Cosmosphere as well um, by our company SpaceWorks. Um, all right. Are there any questions on how the on how space exploration relates to uh, relates to ocean exploration? I may or may not be able to answer. Yes. Yes. Go back here a little bit. Did I pass it? different gaps here? Yeah, where it over. Um, those are, uh, so this is all the same plate, if I remember correctly. So all of this is the same plate. Do you know the Pacific Rim of Fire um, with all the volcanoes along the, along the Pacific Coast? Um, all of those are on the edge of the uh, Pacific tectonic plate. There might be another one that starts here. Um, but I'm unsure about that. But there is a very large Pacific plate that has the uh, rim of fire, a whole bunch of volcanoes around the outside. Yeah, it kind of does. I'll have to look into that. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, sir. So the, um, could you repeat the question, I'm sorry. So it's, uh, it's not the ice that would be, it's not the ice that's floating in the ocean that, that would melt and cause sea level rise. Um, a lot of the, the ice that would cause problems 
is the ice that is housed in glaciers right now, and also um, other other ice, uh, you know, permafrost and things like that that's on land. Uh, there appears to be, but I'm I'm not a um, geologist, huh? Ice actually, water is one of the few things that, as it freezes, it expands. Um, so when water freezes, the, the ice is actually taking up more volume than the water itself. Yeah. Oh yes. So liquid water, as it um, as it heats up, will expand. Um, yeah, the ocean itself will expand as well. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Yes. I know that it can go uh, most of the way to the, it can, it can examine most of the way to the seafloor, um, or all the way to the seafloor in most of the ocean, I'll put it that way. Um, I don't know if, say, a satellite would be able to do a survey of Challenger Deep. I don't know if you can see through that much water. Um, but um, it can see to the, uh, to the ocean floor in most of the world's oceans. So, yeah, satellites are getting pretty advanced these days. I believe that is everything. Um, thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to the Cosmosphere Podcast. Make sure you share and subscribe to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review on iTunes. They're crucial to the success of podcasts, so we'd appreciate it if you could take just a minute to leave a rating or review. They help more people find out about the podcast and the museum. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Molnix.